Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of the daughters to be wives for themselves and some and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts to your word this morning. Let us hear the message that your Spirit has for each one of us. I do pray that the words would not be my own, but would be powerful through your Spirit. That you would give clear exposition of your Word. And that God, being hearers of the Word, we would also be doers of it. For it is in the name of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We return again this week to the passage regarding the sins of the people and their confession to Ezra the scribe. You recall that he had been teaching in Jerusalem at most a mere four months since his arrival. And the teaching of the Word of God was bearing fruit. The officials and the chief men came to Ezra reporting their own sin to him, confessing their role in leading the people of Israel, often by example, to tie themselves in marriage to the idolaters of the land. We began to look last week at how Ezra responded, but I'd like for us to examine this week his response more closely since we'll be looking at the details of his prayer for some weeks to come, God willing. And perhaps the most important word in these four verses is that which is translated in the English Standard Version, appalled. In verse 3 he says, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and I pulled hair from my head and my beard and sat appalled. We don't use that word very often and when we do it's generally hyperbole. I was appalled at that. But when he says it here, he means it. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, this Hebrew word is also translated devastated or even desolate. It's a word rich with a very distinctive meaning. It is a word when used to describe an area of land that carries an idea that had been so utterly destroyed that only silence can be heard. 
A destruction so complete that even insect sounds could not be perceived. I don't know if you've ever been in any place that silent. But that's what the Word tells us. Ezekiel the prophet proclaiming God's word before the conquest of Israel by Babylon. 150 years before Ezra is describing this scene, describe the re- what the result of the conquest of Babylon would be in the land. When he tells them in Ezekiel chapter 33, beginning in verse 28, and I will make the land a desolation, that's the same word, and a waste. And her proud might shall come to an end. And the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that none shall pass through them. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have made the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations that they have committed. When Ezra describes his reaction to the news that the chief men and the priests and the Levites and the officials bring to them, he tells us that his heart was just as devastated as the land had been a century and a half before. He was as silent as the land had been after the people were carried off into captivity. He sat there And he waited, not just a few minutes, but hours in this state. He tells us in verse 4, he waited until the evening sacrifice. That was the time in the mid-afternoon, around 3 p.m., that the sin offering was slaughtered and offered on the altar. That was the time in the afternoon when those who had repented of their sins came to offer that repentance to God. The anguish that he felt, the desolation in which he sat were not for his own sin or his own personal loss. He wasn't mourning for a child or a wife who had died. The crushing weight on his heart was for the people who having just returned to the land were in danger of following the same evil ways that their fathers had done that sent them into the very captivity they had been released from. He wasn't like Job. He wasn't like Job's friends mourning just the tragedies of this world. In Job it says, when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. That's Job's friends as they came up. It says they raised their voices and they wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. You can find that in Job chapter 2 verse 12. Ezra wasn't simply mourning the things that happened in this world. He was mourning for the sins of others. He was suffering on behalf of the leaders of Israel. His anguish was over the depth of their sin. Now some have asked whether he was simply putting on a show, tearing his clothes, pulling his own hair out, and sitting in desolation. They argue that Ezra could not have been surprised by the news of these sins. And that whether he was putting on a show 
or was sincere, it accomplished the same thing, the repentance of the people. But I tell you, based on what I read here in the book of Ezra, I don't think he was putting on a show at all. I would grant that Ezra probably knew of these sins, but in the length of time he had since he had arrived, I find it much more plausible he simply didn't know the true extent of it. Like a fellow who goes to the doctor because he has a strange new pain somewhere. But then the doctor brings out the diagnosis. It's cancer. And it's inoperable. It changes the whole tenor. Something is wrong. But he didn't realize how bad it was. And we also consider that what he was commissioned to teach, the law of God, things that begin with the Ten Commandments, for those four months, they may have been a much greater concern in the early days of his teaching. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You know the ten. And those were probably much more of the teaching that he was presenting. And so there is really no reason to suspect he would have begun with the teaching against being unequally yoked with idolaters. Every indication from his behavior is that this sin blindsided him. If you're simply making a symbolic demonstration, you may tear your clothes, you may tear your cloak, but with that symbolic act complete, there would be no reason to rip out your own hair or your own beard. Only real anguish And real grief brings a man to that extreme. We saw a few minutes ago Job's friends who sympathized with his suffering tore their clothes, but then they simply put dust on their heads. And they, each one, felt like they knew in their heart that Job had committed some grave sin to have been punished as thoroughly by God as he had. Ezra knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that these men who were approaching him were guilty. They were guilty of adultery against God. And so he tore his own hair, his own beard from his head. We can also see the genuineness of Ezra's love and concern through the words he uses to describe what is happening. He talks of the faithlessness of the returned exiles. That word faithlessness really seems to me a weak word for what he is saying. Mainly because we can take it to mean someone who simply lacks faith. Meaning that they never had it. Meaning they were ignorant. But that's not what this word says here. When he calls the returned exiles faithless. In other places this same word is translated treachery. 
a breach of faith. Betrayal. He says the returned exiles have betrayed the God of Israel because they have mixed themselves with the idols of the land. There's nothing accidental or incidental about this word. The faithlessness was completely intentional from the start. Unless you think it's the story of star-crossed lovers, the Romeo and Juliet of Israel and the people of the land, remember that marriages were arranged back in these days. These were families inviting the people of the land to be with them and yet not calling them to follow their God. It is a betrayal of the loving God who had brought them back into the promised land. And when he is speaking of that faithlessness of the returned exiles toward God, he is speaking in real terms of the treason of their traitorous hearts. Ezra's grief over his people knew no boundary. Do we dare to live with that extravagant love? For others, Do we dare mourn when we see or hear the failings or the falling of others? Even Christian leaders we have heard in recent days of leaders who have fallen. Do we mourn that? Or do we stand up in judgment and point a finger and shake our heads? Mourning seems so incompatible with our modern American idea of Christianity. Particularly that imitation flavor that speaks only of God's love, but not of His justice or His wrath. That flavor that urges us to keep a smile on our face and make everyone think that we're happy all the time. Mourning seems out of step with even Christian joy, except the fact The Bible says the two walk hand in hand. We read it this morning. Our Lord said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed, happy are those who mourn. Joy and mourning may not only coexist, they quite often do. Because love and mourning coexist. If I love someone and I know that they are going to stand one day in the presence of a holy God, the most loving thing I can do is to mourn their sin, to call it out, and to pray that much more fervently for them. It is so easy to sit back and say, oh, I don't want to go on that side of town. The side of town I live on is a whole lot better. My neighborhood's a whole lot better. I don't want to go over with those people, whoever those people might be. It's a whole lot easier to keep them at arm's length 
than it is to mourn over the sin that is occurring. Can we really bring ourselves to love somebody, even some group, so much that we mourn over their sin? Because that is the very trait that God describes in His faithful people. If we look in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, when God is telling the angels to go through Jerusalem and find those who are faithful to Him, what He says, He says, go and find the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are being committed in Jerusalem's midst. They sigh and they groan over the sin. And when Paul is writing his second recorded letter to the Corinthians, he told them in in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 21, I am afraid that when I come to again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. When he tells them that God may humiliate him before this oft-straying church, what he's saying is that if they are still unrepentant of these sins, their impurity, their immorality, their sensuality, when he says humiliate, what he says is, I might break down in mourning over you because of the great love I have for you. In 2 Corinthians 12, 15, just a few verses before, he tells them the depth of his love for them. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Do we have that kind of love for those around us that we may have in our minds simply marked as sinners. But when we talk about mourning, I would ask, what are the proper objects of mourning for the follower of Jesus Christ? Is He simply saying that we should walk around with a dour and sour expression? Should our hearts always be downcast? No. Certainly in this world, the loss of those who are dear to us will bring us naturally into a season of mourning. But as believers, it will only be a season. It is not a permanent state of our souls to be mourning for the things of this world. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul tells us, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. What do we have or not have that is not all in our loving Father's hands? We mustn't allow ourselves to remain in mourning over the things of this world. We have a hope that this world doesn't. And that hope is not simply that we will see our loved ones again someday. 
So many songs that when we get to heaven, I'm going to see my granddad and my great-granddad. I'm going to see all those who have been dear to me. And we will. But the glory of heaven is not in the people who have gone on ahead. The glory of heaven is that Jesus Christ is there, our husband, our, and we are His bride. And we are coming into the eternal life that He has promised us. That is the promise. That is the hope of heaven. Our life and theirs is held in His care, secure for eternity for all those who are in Him. And so if it is not for the things of this world that we should mourn, is it for our sin that so often entangles us? We should mourn the sin that so easily encompasses us every single day. But that mourning is not a sadness to the point of giving up. It's a grief that compels us to repentance. Paul writing to these Corinthians again in chapter 7, beginning in verse 8, he says, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. And also what earnestness to clear your, uh, yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that you out of earnestness for us might be by sorry but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God when we mourn the sin that remains in our members we recall the promise of Jesus to those who mourn they shall be comforted and how shall we be comforted when we mourn our sin we shall be comforted by that sin's destruction in our lives. The great missionary to the American Indians, David Brainerd, wrote in his journal on the 18th of October, 1740, In my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness. And vileness. This is a man of prayer so great that Jonathan Edwards himself wrote his biography. Are we busy mourning over our sins or are we busy covering them up? Do we seek to put away these sins? 
Or are we seeking more to hide them from others? If we're truly repentant, and if we are grieving over that sin's influence within us, the Spirit honors that with sanctification. And this brings us back to mourning for others' sins. In Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's speaking of the Jews. In this, what he's saying is that he loves his people, the Jews, so much that if possible, he would be accursed if they would come to the light. And he says, I'm not lying to you. If it were possible, I would do it. How great a love is that. Now we know it is certainly not possible for Paul to be accursed on their behalf. And there's a very good reason for that. Paul is not the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior not Paul. There's a pathology in our world today where people believe that they can love other people more than God loves them. How many people do we hear out there, see on Facebook, saying on the TV, I don't see how God, how a loving God could do They think that their love is greater than the God who sent His Son to die on the cross for their sin. They think their love is greater than the One who has sent His Son to bleed and to die to adopt His enemies into His family. Those people offer words. God offered His Son. Our God loves us more than anyone else can. You can come up with every philosophy in the book. You can try to twist the Scripture or twist the nature of God as revealed through the Scripture. But it will not change the fact that God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God has loved us with a love that is greater than we can possibly know. Greater than we can possibly feel. And greater than we can possibly understand. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 shows that Paul knew exactly what he was talking about. 
He says, if it were possible, I could wish myself accursed. But in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus Christ took on Himself that curse. He paid the debt for our sin that we could never pay in an eternity of hell. He paid it and redeemed all those who believe in Him from it. He became the curse for those who stand under condemnation from the law because that is the business of the Messiah alone. But regardless of the mourning, the cause of that mourning, our hope, our faith is in God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our comfort. He is our answer. And He is our peace. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Our Father, You are the God of all comfort. You have called us to Yourself when there was nothing worthy in us. You didn't call us because of what you saw us becoming. You called us and made us what we are becoming. You didn't choose us because you knew we would choose you. You chose us through your own reason, by your own sovereign plan, and for your own glory. And so God be glorified in us. Let our lives Glorify You. Let our love for one another glorify You. Let the mourning of our hearts when we see the sin that is rampant in our town, in our state, in our nation, and in our world. Let that mourning glorify You. Break our hearts. And at the same time, God, comfort us. We thank You that You have given us Your Spirit, the Parakletos, the Comforter. And You have given Him to us as a down payment, an anticipation of the day where we will stand before You And never more will there be a separation between us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the mighty. Amen.